Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, coming to you from Gadigal Land. This is ABC News Daily. As we take a break this summer, we're looking back at some of our favourite episodes of the year that covered the issues that really mattered to you. Today, the cost of living crisis. This year, we saw interest rates soar after successive hikes by the RBA, ballooning mortgage repayments for borrowers as the central bank fought high inflation. But are rate hikes the only way to fight inflation? ABC Business and Economics reporter Gareth Hutchins offers an alternative. You'd be told each week that a proportion of your income is going to be quarantined that you can't spend, so you just have less money. That's just the reality of it. But first, inflation might be starting to come down, but when will we see a noticeable difference in how much we're paying for everything? We spoke to the ABC's senior digital business reporter, Michael Yander, on why we haven't had a real pay rise for 14 years. This story originally aired in August. Michael, inflation's been falling steadily since December, so things are improving at last. Yeah, look, things are getting better, Sam, but I guess the downside is even if inflation rates do come down, all that means is the prices are not rising as fast as they were before, but Mm. they're still going up. Right, so even though inflation is on the way down, it doesn't mean prices aren't still rising. How long is that going to last? Yeah, well, look, Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe uh, predicted that inflation would still be above its 2 to 3% target for the whole of next year and into 2025, possibly until late 2025. Inflation here and elsewhere around the world turned out to be more persistent than we or anyone expected, and we've, we've had to respond to that. We, there is a credible path back to inflation being within the target range, within kind of a couple of years. And again, as we said, as inflation falls, that doesn't mean prices fall, unless we had deflation, which the Reserve Bank definitely doesn't want. Mm -hmm. They would be slashing interest rates if we were heading for deflation. So we're basically stuck at this new higher price level, and it's likely to be next year at the earliest before interest rates potentially come down again as well. Mm-hmm. And when interest rates fall, that's more likely to be around 3 to 3.5% for the cash rate unless we go into a really bad recession. In other words, the era of ultra-low interest rates is probably over. Right, OK, but that makes it really hard for us to make ends meet because prices are higher, potentially interest rates are going to stay up high as well. It's really hard to keep up. Yeah, and particularly with wages, as most of you listening would know, how wages haven't been rising as fast as the cost of groceries, fuel or other cost of living, rents, electricity, inflation is much higher than wage growth. Everyone is hurting from high inflation. In fact, most people's real income in the country went down last year. So that means their ability to buy goods and services went down. The price level went up by more than people's incomes. And that hurts everybody. Wage growth has picked up, uh, driven by the fall in unemployment and also minimum and award wage increases, and it reached 3.7% over the year to March, which Mm -hmm. is the highest it's been for around a decade. 
but that wage figure is still way below the inflation figure of 6% and that means our pay isn't keeping up with the cost of living. Mm -hmm. We're taking what economists call a real pay cut and that means we're worse off. In fact, wages weren't growing in much at all in the six or seven years before the pandemic relative to the cost of living and the pandemic inflation has sent us all backwards. Our real wages, so what we can buy with the money we earn, is now 5.4% below where it was before the pandemic. That's back at 2009 levels. So Australians haven't had a real pay rise in 14 years. Our living standards just haven't changed in that time. And the longer inflation and interest rates stay higher, the longer that problem will continue. Wow, that's pretty stark. So just so I've got this right, wage increases are well behind the rate of inflation and that's leaving most of us going backwards. But the Reserve Bank of Australia argues that it has to be this way, right? Yeah, while it would be nice if we could have 6% pay rises to keep up with that latest inflation figure, most economists, including at the Reserve Bank, argue if wages rise too fast, it only stokes inflation. One reason is that if wages are going up, people have more money to spend uh, and that fuels demand. The other is that wages are a big cost for business and so if wages go up a lot, businesses will try and pass those costs on through higher prices Mm -hmm. and if consumers have the money to spend and they can pay those higher prices, then we get into what's called the wage price spiral Mm -hmm. and according to that theory, workers really need to suffer a little bit now and the Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe, who's just about to finish up, has basically said this, we're going to take below inflation pay increases for a while Mm -hmm. uh, until they can get inflation down and then hopefully we'll have a period of above inflation pay rises for many years after that to allow workers to catch up. Going forward, uh, expecting inflation to come back down and um, income growth to exceed the rate of inflation again either late this year or sometime next year so people's real incomes will be rising again and that will help everybody. But there is some evidence that that model is not working well, particularly for workers. Right, okay. So the RBA seems to be saying we just need to suffer through it and things will get better eventually. But, Michael, what evidence do we have that the model that they're using might be broken, that we might be on the wrong track there? Yeah, well, the key one is so far there's been no evidence at all of wage price spirals in Australia. Mm -hmm. There's been some talk of it in the US and UK and some other countries, but no real evidence here. The March quarter wage figures were actually slower, smaller gains than the December quarter. And while wage rises are less than 4% per annum, they are consistent with the Reserve Bank's inflation target as long as productivity growth is around average levels. And the Reserve Bank said this itself. Mm-hmm. And the reality is workers haven't captured most of those gains from previous productivity increases. The share of national income of GDP going to profits has jumped since the start of the 1980s. Mm-hmm. It's been in the last few years around the highest level on records that go back to the end of the 1950s. Workers were getting less than half of what Australia produced in the form of wages. Mm-hmm. 
and back in the 1970s and early 80s that peaked above 60%. So that's a big change in what workers are getting relative to profits. Now, business groups in the RBA say the share going to profits hasn't increased much in the past couple of decades, except for the mining and financial sectors. Mm. But that's a pretty big except. Uh, I'm not sure many Australian workers care if it's only a small group of big businesses gobbling up more of the economic pie. Uh, They just want their fair slice. So what you're saying, Michael, there is that businesses are basically taking a much bigger bit of the pie. That's right, Sam. So the way you can measure this is through national income, which is the GDP or gross domestic product figures we hear about every few months from the Bureau of Statistics, and they measure how much Australia is producing and what it's worth. And the share of that going to workers is less than half. And at the peak in the 1970s and early 1980s, workers were often seeing more than 60% of national income going to them. So that's fallen. It sounds like there is room to improve wages from what you're saying. Yeah, and look, it's one of the reasons that it's been so hard is that the industrial relations system is very different from what it was in the 70s and 80s. -hmm. It's now incredibly hard for workers to take industrial action, strike action. Mm. Back in the late 80s and early 90s, Australia used to regularly lose between four and 500,000 working days to strike action every quarter, every three months. Mm-hmm. And it was probably even higher than that in the 70s. Now, we've lo- only lost more than 100,000 working days to industrial action once in the past decade, and that is during the period of the Labor government's, previous Labor government's Fair Work Act. So even the Fair Work Act is very restrictive Mm. on workers taking strike action. So, Michael, inflation is going to hang around for a while and we know wages aren't keeping up. Can that change or that's just now set in stone? We just have to accept that's how it's going to be. Yeah, well, as I said, the RBA argues that we need to suffer a little bit now so Mm -hmm. that when inflation falls, wage growth can overtake it and then eventually we'll catch back up and get ahead. But it could take a long time. The Centre for Future Works, Greg Jericho, estimates that this could take at least seven years and Mm -hmm. that's if wages grew at the faster pace that they were at the beginning of this century during the mining boom. If wages grew at the same slow pace that we were seeing prior to the pandemic, then that could take double the period of time. That could take 14 years, Mm, so until 2037, (laughs) for wages to get back in real terms uh, to where they were. And and we're talking to get back to, you know, pre-pandemic levels. Gosh, that's a long, that's a long time. That uh, sounds way too long. Just assure me now, Michael, that even if it does take that long, we're not going to go backwards forever. They say we'll catch up, but do they really mean it? Well, look, inflation is coming down, mm. and so there's a pretty good chance that the wages inflation equation will flip either at the end of this year or early next year. So wages growth will start being faster again than inflation and we won't be taking real pay cuts anymore. 
It's unlikely to be a simple fix or, as they say, a, a silver bullet, um, much cliched term that it is. But, uh, you know, there are things that can be done to level up the playing field. It's just the, the potentially politically difficult and obviously the people who are getting the benefit at the top are very unlikely to give that up. Michael Yanda is the ABC's senior digital business reporter. Throughout the year, the Reserve Bank has insisted the best way to fight inflation is by raising interest rates. But is inflicting pain on Australian households the only way? ABC Business and Economics reporter Gareth Hutchins offers an ingenious alternative. This story originally aired in February. Gareth, Australians have seen so many rate rises this year and last year. It's been really hard. Another rate rise from the Reserve Bank tightens the squeeze. The Reserve Bank is treading a precarious path, trying to tame inflation while avoiding a recession. And so that's confronting for homeowners because they're paying even more money to the banks. Yeah, you're, um, you're left feeling like the banks are stealing our money. The RBA to try to control inflation needs to stop us spending. We are trying to navigate a narrow path here. Uh, We want to get inflation down because it's dangerous. And to do that, it's continuing to raise interest rates. Demand interest rates for all the faults and all the problems we have is the more nimble tool. So, you know, we pay more of our income to the banks uh, and that takes money away from us and prevents us from being able to spend at the shops. I know everyone's piling on Philip Lowe, the head of the RBA at the moment. Um, I get a lot of people writing to me, telling me about their personal circumstances. And, you know, I read those letters and hear those stories um, with a very heavy heart. Is it really his fault, Gareth? Because it's his job, isn't it, to keep inflation in check? And isn't it the only way he can do that is by raising rates? Yeah, like, let's not make this a personal attack on the governor. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not even a personal attack on the Reserve Bank as an institution. What we're criticising here is the larger policy framework, which acts as though fighting inflation is the sole preserve of the RBA and that government should stay on the sidelines. But it hasn't always been this way. In, in fact, it was, it's only been this way since the, the 1990s when the Reserve Bank was made independent and it was giving the task of targeting inflation. But for, for a huge part of the 20th century, policymakers really took it for granted that governments did have a big role to play in managing inflation, which things like taxes and levies or tax cuts, even price controls and rent freezes in some circumstances. When you read the debates that economists were having in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, you can really see great minds trying to tackle these issues. We have a terrific task ahead of us. We have a shattered world around us. And then to demobilise and transition to a peacetime economy after the war, all of which were huge problems and had just different ways of dealing with it. I call upon you to march with me towards the beacon lights of national prosperity and honour, which must ever be our guide. Now, in 1940, the British economist John Maynard Keynes was thinking really deeply about ways to control inflation when the British economy was going to be 
in a full employment situation during the war, and he wrote an essay called How to Pay for the War, where he talked about the economics of compulsory saving, and it's a masterpiece in macroeconomic thinking. <laughs> and it also sounds like it's uh, complicated then. What was <laughs> well, he saying? It's, it's actually pretty simple. Keynes argued that during the war, people were going to have a large amount of disposable income and accumulated savings because there'd be a situation of genuine full employment because of mobilisation for total war, but there'd be fewer opportunities for people to spend their income because most of the resources in the economy would be directed towards the war effort so there'd be fewer consumer goods in the economy. And he suggested you'd have two options. Right. And what are they, I assume, not increasing interest rates? Well, increasing interest rates was one of them, but he said the other option was more palatable. So he came up with the idea that you could postpone people's ability to spend too much by quarantining a proportion of their weekly income every pay cycle and putting it into a fund where it could generate interest for those workers. Then after the war, that money could be released back to workers to support consumption through any post-war slump that might eventuate. And under his plan, each worker would have a deferred pay card, which would be stamped by their employer, recording how much of their pay was being quarantined each week. So everyone would have a record of how much they were owed when the war was over. It was a brilliant concept. Mm, it sounds fascinating. So workers, they'd be receiving less money in their pocket and that would stop the inflationary pressures. When inflation was no longer a problem then, Gareth, after the war, they were what just got their money back. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even Friedrich Hayek, an Austrian economist who spent his life trying to rid the world of Keynes's influence, <laughs> said the idea was ingenious. Mm, but hang on, the question I've got is, if everyone gets their savings back at the same time after the war and they all start spending all at once again, like we saw after the COVID lockdowns were lifted, won't that just fuel the inflation once again? Great question. I mean, there are different ways you could design such a scheme. You wouldn't necessarily get access to those savings all at the same time. So they could go into a super fund, for instance. Now, Keynes suggested that you could get, people could get their money back in instalments. So you could really manage the economic effects of those regular flow of small savings hitting the economy. But, you know, there'd be a million different ways you could design such a scheme. Mm, it sounds, as you say, ingenious. So is it something that we could actually do today instead of Australians giving more of their hard-earned money to the banks because of rate rises? Could we do this? Could we park our money somewhere else just for a little while? For sure. Like, why, why shouldn't households get to keep the money they've worked hard for and have access to it later once the inflationary wave has passed? Again, it could go into their super accounts where it would generate returns for those households and build their future wealth. Um, and it would also mean the savings effort would include all households rather than just those households with mortgages so you'd have much more control of excess consumption through all sections of the economy. But what about low-income households? Because they might not have enough in their pay packets anyway to give up some of that. That doesn't seem fair. No. I mean, another great point. They wouldn't necessarily have to be included. It would be completely unjust, I think, to ask households that are already struggling to survive, to pay for their meals and bills, to put more money away each week. 
Like, how can they if they don't have the money to begin with? So the, the scheme should focus on households that have disposable income and savings, and you design it in such a way that everyone saves according to their ability to save. Okay, so let's talk about whether or not this is realistic, because this is an idea that was born a long time ago. Has anyone been talking about a concept like this more recently? Yeah, Nicholas Gruen, he, he's the brother of David Gruen, who is the head of the Australian Bureau of Statistics. He wrote a paper in 1999 that talked about the ways you could use people's compulsory super contributions to manage inflation by lifting the compulsory contribution rate up and down, depending on the state of the economy. Much more recently, in 2020, another Australian economist, Lachlan Kerwood-McCall, he wrote a paper saying, you could have an adjustable compulsory savings mechanism separate to compulsory super, but which would put excess savings into people's super accounts during inflationary episodes. So it would almost be auxiliary to the super system. Mm, sounds pretty good. So under the Keynes model, you'd be saving, but you'd still, Gareth, be feeling an immediate pinch, wouldn't you? Things would still be hard or harder day to day to make ends meet. Yeah, you would, because you'd be told each week that a proportion of your income is going to be quarantined that you can't spend, so you just have less money. That's just the reality of it. But, I mean, we're dealing with that situation at the moment when households are being forced to hand over more of their income to their banks. Do you think, Gareth, this idea could work today to bring inflation down? Yeah, w what I'm getting at is if this type of scheme was already in place before this inflationary episode hit us, maybe we wouldn't be in this situation. If we allowed ourselves to use more creative and alternative ways of controlling inflation, we wouldn't be solely relying on monetary policy, lifting rates up and down to do all the heavy lifting. By relying so much on monetary policy over the last 30 years, it's led to the situation we're in now. With socially destructive house prices, increased wealth inequality, a growing divide between homeowners and renters, there has to be a better way. Gareth Hutchins is a business and economics reporter based in Canberra. Cost of living has been a big issue for Australians in 2023, and we covered it a lot on ABC News Daily. If you like these episodes, you'd also like the episode Why You're Not Getting Cost of Living Help, where we spoke to the ABC's national political lead and Insiders host, David Spears. Here's a teaser. So let's consider then, Spearsy, what the government is actually doing to help. The Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, says Labor's given targeted and responsible assistance to the people that need it. So what have they actually done? Well, it's worth reminding everyone that inflation actually helps the budget bottom line, right? So government coffers are swollen because income tax revenues are higher, company tax revenues are higher, and this has helped turn the budget from a projected deficit into a surplus. And look, the government rightly mm -hmm. had banked nearly all of that revenue upgrade. Spending it would have made matters a whole lot worse. Now, it did spend some, though. It allocated about oh, just over $14 billion, and that money's been rolling out in targeted 
unprecedented ways over recent months. Job seeker went up a little. The single parent payment, rent assistance, childcare subsidies, mm -hmm. Medicare bulk billing incentives were increased. So in a very targeted way, the government is trying to help those most in need. It's never going to be enough to satisfy those who need the most help, mm -hmm. but it is trying to do the right thing by helping where it can, but not too much that it's going to make the inflation problem worse. Well, I think what we've demonstrated is an ability to target cost of living relief to those areas where the pain is most acute. And what we've decided to do is to work out where our cost of living assistance will put downward pressure, not upward pressure on inflation. That's why we've gone for those ways of delivering help. So the government doesn't want to fuel inflation, but let's return to that other group that we mentioned before, the group that's sort of doing okay. One of the problems the government has is that the older generation, the baby boomers, they still have lots of cash. They don't have mortgages. They have really healthy super funds and they're actually spending up big fueling inflation. So can't the government do something to address that, to address the inequitability of, of all of this? Well, it could, but I think there's a limit to how far the government is going to go here. It's no secret that baby boomers are sitting pretty, increasing their wealth. Mm -hmm. Millennials and Generation Z are going backwards. And as our colleague Alan Kohler has pointed out, Commonwealth Bank results recently highlighted this great divide between the generations. Millennials have the most debt. Baby boomers have the most savings. And Jed Zens and millennials are cutting back their spending and therefore doing all the hard work helping the Reserve Bank get inflation down. Baby boomers are spending more and undermining that effort. So, sorry about that, kids. So what can government do about this? Well, look, the last time Labor really tried to go after uh, those who are sitting on big assets and big wealth mm. was in the 2019 election campaign and it ended in disaster. Yes. This was when Bill Shorten promised to rein in negative gearing rules, capital gains tax discounts, franking credits, all measures aimed at taxing assets more. New purchases of existing housing won't be able to claim a government subsidy. If I'm not giving you a subsidy, for you making a loss on an investment property, that ain't a new tax. That just means you're not getting a subsidy. And of course, Labor lost that election. And since then, Labor's been very reluctant to touch any of those individual measures. Mm -hmm. Should note, though, that the one thing the Albanese government has done on this front since coming to office is increase the tax on big superannuation accounts, those holding more than $3 million in their super balance. They still get a discounted tax rate, but not as generous a discount as it previously was. But even that rather modest measure was fiercely attacked by the opposition. So you can see why Labor's a bit cautious. Yes. And we all wanted to know who had the $3 million super funds. Anyway, <laughs> sounds pretty good to me. It does. All right. So it's very unlikely the baby boomers spending will be targeted. What about these stage three tax cuts, which are meant to come into force next year? Is the government going to continue with those? I think it's unlikely they will touch them uh, at all, despite mm -hmm. the fact we're now told that inflation will still be higher than it should be by mid next year when these stage three tax cuts uh, come in. So th there might be an issue there about this making the problem worse. Mm. Look, the stage three tax cuts, just to remind people, they give everyone over uh, earning more than $45,000 a year some benefit, but by far the biggest benefit goes to those at the top earning more than $200,000 a year. Mm -hmm. The issue for the government, though, of course, is credibility. It promised over and again to keep these stage three tax cuts. So this would become a totemic issue of trust yes. if they tried to amend them, rein them in, shift them a little. So I think it's unlikely that the government will uh, touch them. But 
arguably there's a very good argument that we need to do something about our tax system. Yeah. All right. Well, let's strike that off the list for now then. Another factor, as you mentioned before, is migration, is the huge surge in population that we've had. That is something the government is in control of, at least. It is, but this isn't easy either. Uh, Look, the government is making some changes to the migration system. It wants to close loopholes that have seen, for example, too many people brought in on student visas when they're not really students but here to uh, work in low-paid work. Uh, It's also trying to attract more permanent skilled migrants so we're not constantly relying so heavily on temporary migrants. These changes will make some difference, but look, you know, they're not going to go as far as some might like. And, you know, in many ways, we do need uh, particularly skilled migration to plug some of the the gaps that we have in the economy. Mm. But when we're in a cost of living crisis, immigration can be a really potent political issue. Much of the blame for the pain people are feeling uh, falls on new arrivals. The Mm. government's aware of that. The opposition's certainly aware of that. I suspect we'll hear a lot more about migration between now and the election. So it's not only economically tricky for the government, it's so politically difficult because voters, as you mentioned, are not happy. So how's the government going to navigate that? Well, it's I, I suspect it's going to do more of what it did in the budget earlier this year, and that is only targeted relief. While ever inflation's a problem, its biggest mistake would be to make that problem worse. So it's it's aware of that. It's being very careful about that. Uh, it doesn't want you know, any more blame to fall on its shoulders. But clearly, there is already blame. You know, we're seeing that in the polls. As I say, they're still in a comfortable lead over the coalition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, as this pressure continues, as this cost of living crisis rolls on, you can see the trajectory of support for the government might just keep slipping. You can find that episode from November in the ABC Listen app. Just search ABC News Daily. It's in the feed. That's it for this special episode of ABC News Daily. The podcast will be back with new episodes daily from the 29th of January. Follow the show on the ABC Listen app.